Suspend your disbelief. Let yourself be led down a path into the world of the paranormal, where ghosts, shadow people, cryptids, aliens, and all things supernatural dominate. Immerse yourself in a dimension of ominous trepidation with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Welcome to the Phantom Faction Podcast. Welcome to this edition of Phantom Faction Podcast. I'm Danny. I'm Dan. And I'm Rachel. And we're brought to you by... Rampage Coffee. Yes. Delicious coffee. Did You you got your coffee, didn't you, Rachel? I did. I'm enjoying it. Yes. We are enjoying our coffee. (laughs) Actually, my wife was enjoying the coffee last night. Oh, yes? Because we ran out of the... the, Mm -hmm. You know, she keeps the good stuff in the freezer, like the Rampage. She keeps it away from her mother. Mm, yeah, <laughs> she lets her poor mommy have the generic stuff. So oh, exactly, we got low, so she she broke out the rampage, and she's like, "Oh, we need more of this." So I better get we better get cracking. Oh. <laughs> so you know what? This uh, podcast been getting some pretty nice comments lately, oh. and uh, on all our guests lately, uh, top shelf, really. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've been working hard. On Dan's that. been doing the bookings, and yes. uh, and you did it again. I did. Uh, yes, we have a gentleman by the name of Bill Bean on with us today. And if you're not familiar with Bill, Bill's been everywhere. <laughs> Bill's been on, on a million shows and a million programs, and he's yep. written several books, and he has a website. And uh, for those who don't know anything about poor Bill, Bill's going to tell us about when he was four years old. That's where it all started, right? Yeah, and, and guys, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is, this and, is great. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm like Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere. <laughs> it's been amazing, amazing journey. I, you know, and it started out, like you said, Dan, at age four. And so from that early age, I became a victim and uh, just victimized by demonic forces. My family was destroyed by demonic forces. I was nearly destroyed as well. And um, so it all began... And I, and I say this, I've, I've written seven books, and in the first book, Dark Force, I say that it began when my family and I moved into this three-bedroom ranch-style home located in Glenbury, Maryland, in a community called Herondale. But it really goes much further back than that. I found out after I'd written my book. I have very little family left, and the family members that I do have, they're really reluctant to talk about the things that took place back then. And I find that when, certainly where I'm at now, as an exorcist, deliverance minister, and a counselor for people as well, I find that when people suffer high levels of trauma, they really don't want to talk about it. They try to just bury it, you know, and it's just so painful to talk about. And um, so that's what was going on with some family members. But I did have one family member reveal some things to me that, uh, that my mother actually had uh, many paranormal supernatural and her siblings as well many paranormal supernatural experiences in their childhood. And then I found out that it went much further back than that. I found out that two family members who I don't even know, you know, conjured these demonic forces. And I believe through that conjuring, if what I was told is true, that it opened the doorway for these demonic forces to come in and literally stay attached to not only the family members that conjured them, but then spread throughout the family, sort of uh, like a bloodline curse, if you will, something in, in that manner. And boy, oh boy, did it ever greatly affect the family. And then when my mother um, had gotten married, you know, my dad and his family were affected as well. So it affected both sides of the families, many tragedies, uh, many just awful, awful things had taken place even before we moved to that house in 1970. So again, going back to 1970 at age four, I recall the first time that I stood in front of the house, my sister, she was uh, 13 and um, we were frightened. And it just had this ominous look and feel about it. And it was semi-dilapidated. My father, uh, William Bean Sr., he was a master carpenter. They saw it as a restoration project. My mother, Patricia Bean, she was a homemaker. And uh, my older sister, Patty, and the younger brother, uh, Bobby, he was one at the time. And I'll never forget that. And she said she never forgot it either, just standing there and just taking this in and having this just awful feeling. And so, uh, 
going inside of the house, the feeling never left, that's for sure. If anything, it intensified because going inside of the house, it was very dark. And even on the brightest of days, it was dark in that house because the uh, paneling, there was this dark brown paneling on the walls and it was almost black in color. And so the house was always very dark. And, and I've also learned that when evil is present, you will feel it in a variety of ways. And all life operates on frequency and vibration. And the devil can manipulate our frequency and vibration that we operate on. So you can feel uh, a frequency. You can also feel an atmospheric change. And, and whether the air suddenly feels heavy, um, sometimes smells, foul odors are accompanied with this. And, uh, you know, whether that is a smell of rotten eggs or uh like uh decaying flesh or feces or whatever it may be sulfur um these types of smells did manifest in there uh, many many times and so coming into the house uh coming into the front door you would enter into the living room area and then uh once in the living room you could make a right and that would take you down a long hallway uh, which had this hard tile uh, on the floor and the, uh, the bedrooms were, were there off of that. And uh, so my brother and I shared the first room on the right. My parents' room was the next room down. And my sister's room uh, was the last room on the left, which I believe to be the main portal in the house. That room stayed cold even on the hottest of summer days. And that's also the room where the door would open and slam by itself for many repetitions at a time. And furthermore, I believe that the main portal was located in her closet. And there were times that, and interestingly enough, that closet tied into another closet at the end of the hallway, which was like a linen type of closet that was at the end of the hallway. And many times entities would literally walk right through the doors of that closet at the end of the hallway and also my sister's room. And um, my dad had erected a pool right outside of the house, right you know, off of my sister's room there. And again, my dad was a perfectionist and very skilled individual. And um, after putting the pool up, they, they let the pool fill up overnight. And my parents got up the next morning and found the backyard flooded. Uh, something had caved that pool in with tremendous force and the water just gushed out and flooded the backyard. So uh, my mother was the first to have an experience, a paranormal supernatural experience in the house. And it was just after moving in. She was unpacking boxes uh, in the living room. My dad had taken us with him for the day to go and see his parents and give my mother a break so we wouldn't be under her feet while she was trying to unpack and organize in the house. And it was during the course of this that she felt a presence come into the room. And she thought that it was my dad. She thought that uh, he was sneaking back in to play a joke on her. And she spun around fully anticipating on seeing him and her shock, you know, nothing was there. So as you guys can imagine, she was taken aback, she was perplexed, she was confused, she was frightened, all these things, um, but eventually able to go back to doing what she was doing. And then my sister's door slammed shut by itself, and that was enough to make her go outside and wait until we returned. So that's how it all began, and then gradually escalated into more of these types of uh, paranormal supernatural events. And then escalated into violent physical attacks on us from these demonic entities and greatly contributed to the destruction of my family. So what makes you so lucky? <laughs> um, really. I, I look back on it now and I fully understand why I endured those things. Wow. I believe that God had a purpose for my life before I came into this world. I also believe that I had to experience those things in order to be where I'm at right now and helping other people. I could not be a help to others. I wouldn't be able to relate to them. I could be the greatest scholar in the world, but if I hadn't endured the things that I've endured and had those types of experiences, we wouldn't be able to relate. There's no way, mm -hmm. but people know that I've been there 
and so they can trust me. And again, going right back to what I said in the opening about people that suffer high levels of trauma, they have a very difficult time trusting people. So when they know someone's been there, it kind of brings the wall down and then you can come together. Exactly. It's like, you know, trusting a firefighter who's never even, you know, put a fire up. It just doesn't, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense, right? So, You're right, Dan. I mean, so I'm very thankful to God. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, I went through the things that I went through, especially when it comes to the suffering of my mother who suffered more than any other person I've ever seen in my life. And if I could ever go back in time and change anything, it would be the to change the suffering that my mother had endured for so long. Mm-hmm. But as far as um, the things that I had experienced and been through, and that included regular demonic attacks on me for many years, um, I understand that it was a part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And some of us, when we have, uh, no man is better than another, but some people do have higher callings from God. And when such a calling is placed, we've got to go through some pretty bad things in order to get to where God wants and needs us to be. Right. Bill, was your family uh, religious at the time? No. Uh, they, my parents believed in God, but we never attended church as children. We were never baptized. Uh, so, n- no. I mean, there wasn't really anything faith-based. However, I will say this. Even though... And at that point in time, you know, in childhood, I never even picked the Bible up. So I didn't know anything about anything when it came to the Bible. Uh, Yet, I always had this faith. And I don't know how, but I have to tell you guys, I always had this blind type of faith in God. Um, And I knew that he was real. I knew that um, it wasn't God causing us to suffer in this way. And I certainly lived my life in fear throughout my childhood. Um, However, through it all, I always had this blind faith. And it would really come into play in 1979 at age 13 when I went on a trip uh, with my younger brother uh, to see my father. My father left us when I was nine and he had moved to Florida. Uh, and went to work for his older brother, my Uncle Clifford, who recently passed. Um, And my Uncle Clifford was a devout Christian, you know, very strong in faith, and was so, you know, up until the time of his passing. And so uh, I had a lengthy discussion with him while down there, and he shared with me that we could take power and authority over these demonic forces by the power of God. And he really planted seeds with me, and it was... uh, just amazing how God worked the whole thing out because immediately upon returning from that trip, I would find myself engaged in my first battle against those very demonic forces uh, that were literally ruining our lives. And so everything is for a reason. God knows what he's doing. And so those seeds were planted uh, precisely at the right time in order for me to be ready for the battle that I would engage in in 1979. So just, uh, we don't have enough time in this show to go through it all, but I can assure you that uh, yeah. it was hell. It really was. It was a, it was a little slice of hell. And I, uh, my only solace in childhood, my only escape, that was through sports. Uh, I was uh, an athlete. I excelled in many different types of sports. And I was the first guy on the field and the last guy to leave because I did not want to go back home. So I would stay on that field as long as I could. And, um, you know, just reflecting back on some of these things, it is mind-boggling the amount of experiences and abuse that we had sustained for such a long period of time. I, I don't know. It had to be God, but they kept us alive. And furthermore, it wasn't long after us finally being forced out of there, that two tragedies occurred. You know, first, my beloved grandmother, Dora Harvey, died from a sudden series of heart attacks. And then two months later, my beloved mother, Patricia Bean, died from cerebral hemorrhage at 44. So um, just absolutely, when you look at the whole thing, and Dan, I don't know if you've read the book. Um, If you have, I thank you. Uh, And if you have, then you're following along saying, yeah, well, what he's saying here, uh, it is true. 
And I take no uh, joy in reporting the sufferings that we had endured, but they really happened and people need to know about it. And I always hope and pray that God worked through me to be a blessing to others. And by sharing my story and my experiences that I endured, I pray that I'll uplift and inspire and motivate others who really think that they're at the end of the rope and have nothing left and no hope and no faith, nothing. And I always pray that it will give them something to inspire and motivate them to show them that, look, we can be in the very worst of circumstances in life, yet God can change that around. And I can never thank God and praise God enough for transforming my life from victim to victor. Bill, how long did you stay in this home? We stayed in there for 10 years from 1970 to 1980 and how we endured that again. And the activity I, activity was continuous for those 10 years? No, it, in the beginning, it was, uh, wasn't as severe as what it ended up being. And um, wow. in the beginning, it just uh, was a series of noises. And um, I can recall the... Uh, the rocking chair rocking by itself out there in the living room. And back then you didn't have remote control TVs. You had the, uh, the TVs with the channel selectors, you know, you'd have to get up and change the channel. Yeah. There were only three channels anyway. Yeah. And, um, the TV that we had was a very heavy dial. You know, it would take effort to change that channel. And yet there were times when the TV would turn on by itself and the dial would just flip effortlessly. Um, we would hear footsteps coming down the hallway and, and like someone had on hard soled shoes or boots or something and it would reverberate off of the panel walls in the hallway. We'd hear that late at night. You'd also hear voices uh, many times. I would hear voices and most of the time you couldn't understand what they were saying. It would be in, uh, like they were chanting, but it was muffled where you couldn't understand what they were saying. Did you ever have a paranormal team come in? and do any investigation at the time? Back then, you didn't have that. If no. you went and got somebody involved like that, then the neighborhood would deem you to be a crackpot and a nut, and you'd be shunned and shamed. So it was a whole different mindset back then. You just didn't do things like that. Right. As a matter of fact, in 1979, the next-door neighbor actually offered, you know, said, look, I know these people that do this ghost hunting stuff, and uh, why don't you let them come in? And my mother said, absolutely not. She was so embarrassed and ashamed by all of it. Wow. And again, when people suffer these high levels of trauma, and whether it is through these types of experiences or child molestation, rape, whatever it may be, people are embarrassed. You know, the victims, they don't want anybody to know about this. They just, they try to, they retreat within and they try to just do anything and everything to either escape it and some people, unfortunately, escape it through a world of drugs and alcohol and things of that nature. And, and others, they just try to bury themselves in the sand as far as they can. Because, and I was one of those people for a long time, you know, because you can't face that. But in order to be free from it, you do have to face it and get it up and out and off. And that is a large part of my work today in helping others. Mm -hmm. Through the podcast and our own investigating, we, we come across a lot of people like yourself who have had issues, maybe not as, as extreme as you, but we do know of one, mm -hmm, <laughs> who, uh, sure. one gentleman who uh, was attacked daily for years, Pun wow. punched, uh, he'd, he'd be uh, pushed, all sorts of things. We believe that he actually had some form of PTSD from this after a while. Yes, did, did, I agree did, with you 100%. Did you, did you and your brother or sister have any long-lasting effects from that? Like, how did it affect them? Still affects them. Um, what changed for me, and I have to tell you, and, and I'll try and be as brief as I can because I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but it's suffering all of those things for so long. Um, my dad, who was a very, very good man, uh, made some terrible choices. And my dad was a man's man. He was a very strong and rugged individual. Uh, he was used to being in control of every situation. He didn't fear anybody that walked on the face of the earth. However, um, he too was attacked. And it confounded him so badly 
he never told us about it. He ended up confiding in my grandmother, my mother's mother, about it. Uh, but it affected him so greatly that his escape was alcoholism. And, you know, my parents back then, they were social drinkers. They would have these family gatherings and, and everybody drank and smoked. Um, not me, thank God. But uh, that's how it was back there in the, in the 70s. And uh, so they were social drinkers. But then after he started having these experiences and uh, attacks as well, he just went into this downward spiral and uh, his business failed and everything failed. I mean, he just got lost and was staying out, you know, late at night and then he would come home and my mother would be upset because she wanted to know what was going on. And then it turned violent. He started to physically abuse my mother on a regular basis between 1973 and 1975 nearly killing her on several occasions. I can recall being eight years old, having to run into a neighbor's to get the police call on my father because he was killing my mother. Mm -hmm. And the whole time, these demonic forces were gaining in power off of all of this negative, horrible, you know, evil energy and these traumatic things that are taking place. And so this was all part of the suffering as well. He left us in 1975. And then my mother came under regular attack. I, I did as well. I mean, my, my first attack took place in 1971 at age five. But my, uh, my mother came under regular demonic attack after my dad had left. And she had cuts, bruises, bite marks, scratches, you name it, uh, on her long after he had gone. Wow. And so it, was, uh, it had really continued to increase. We had a priest involved. Now, I'm not Catholic. Catholic. My family wasn't either. But my step-grandfather was, and he went to his church, and they sent a Catholic priest out, and he was involved with this for the last 16 months that we lived there. And it got to the point that he was bringing mason jars full of holy water and saying, telling my mother, you know, whatever you saw these entities, or if they tried to attack you, throw the holy water on them and, and things of that nature. I mean, it just, we had a number that we could call him all hours of the night, and uh, he would be there for us. And... Uh, it was just uh, a hellish, it was so bad that if it were just my mom and I in the house together and she had to use the bathroom, I'd sit outside the door until she came out. I mean, that's how bad it was. Wow. And so these were great psychological scars from high levels of trauma that I had sustained my mother and my siblings as well. And so for me, it all changed when I decided that I really wanted to make God first in my life. And I felt that God had saved me and transformed my life. But prior to that, I didn't, you know, after enduring so much and then having my mother suddenly gone and my grandmother, uh, I was devastated. I had to quit school in the eighth grade. I went to work. I lied about my age. Um, I was paying $40 a week to live somewhere. Uh, I was on my own. I had to grow up very, very quickly, and I made a lot of bad mistakes along the way. I grew up on the streets. I hung out with the worst of the worst people. I did drugs. I drank. I could very easily have ended up dead or in prison. I've been in many life-threatening situations. Yet through it all, God protected me and helped me to move forward. But my, um, my siblings... They don't share in my faith. I love them both dearly, and, and we are close and will always be close. But um, they don't share in my faith, and they have, uh, they still deal with some things, especially my brother, you know, deep, deep psychological scars. And I pray for them, and I, 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 tr I can't twist their arms to believe the way I believe. You know, God gave us free will. But I'll always be there for them. And, and if the day comes that they are ready, to uh, make God first in their, in, in their life, then I'll be right there for them to help them to, you know, prepare them in that and to help uh, to secure that relationship with God. Right. But uh, it's just, um, again, when you have this type of uh, a level of trauma, it is a PTSD. And uh, in my case, God took that from me. I will say this, though, when, when I first written Dark Force, uh, you know, the first book, book and the uh, 
the the sixth book as well is called Dark Force Revisited. It was very, very difficult for me to write that story because I had to immerse myself in that again and relive those events. It was very, very tough. But at the same time, it was a purging as well. So getting that stuff up and out and off and even translating it, you know, to the to the paper, so to speak, to to give it to others for them to read and, and understand what took place. It was a purging. So it ended up being a, a cleansing for me and a purging. And without me really turning to God and making him first in my life, there's no way I'd be here today. There's just no way. A demonic presence like that in, in your own experiences or people that you have helped, as your faith grew, does that really put pressure on the demonic spirit? Uh, does he fight back harder? Or Well, they're always going to fight. I mean, they, you know, mm -hmm. the devil's mission is to kill, rob, and destroy, and that, that mm -hmm. is never ceasing, never ending. But the good news is, certainly for me, and I can't tell others what to do, I can tell you what I do. Mm -hmm. um, for me, in keeping God first, I invoke the power of God over my life every single day. And I have to tell you guys, you, you just wouldn't believe me. You would have had to have been there with me to see some of these situations that I endured not only as a child, but as a young man and some of the situations that were life-threatening that I was involved in. And then even now, as a minister and a spiritual warrior for God, I've been in life-threatening situations since then as well. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's just amazing. God has kept me safe through all of it, but I have to invoke the power of God over my life every day. So I say a spiritual warfare prayer every single day. Uh, I declare victory in each and every day. I have a whole list and preparation and prayers. It's automatic to me now, but I say this every single day of my life and I will continue to do so. The first thing I do is when I open my eyes, I thank God and praise God for the day because life is a gift. We are not promised tomorrow, so we really need to make the most of each and every day. And the devil knows this, and so he looks for openings. And just as God assigns angels to all of us, the devil assigns demons, and they look for openings. And uh, when an opening comes, they will kick the door in. And it's very, very difficult to get them out once they're in. And the only way that you can get um, demons out is by the power of God and an agent for God, and whether that's me or anybody else that God would work through, I'm nothing special. I, I just am a vessel for God and an agent for God, and God has done extraordinary things through me in helping other people, and I praise Him for that. So that's the only way that you're going to get rid of them, and even still, the devil will still send them back and look for openings and uh, there have been clients that I've gone to. I've traveled all over America, every bit of America I've seen. I've helped people in nearly 50 other countries as well. And some people I have performed exorcisms or spiritual deliverances over. They never had another problem again. And they moved forward and they went on to have a great life. Others I've been back to uh, several times, uh, up to five times, that have... You know, they do well for a while and then something opens and then it's right back in mm -hmm. and they call me or email me or whatever. And then I'm there for them. And, and look, I'm a very, very busy man. I'm busy every day. However, I try to make a commitment to these people because I do take these sufferings personally. I know what it's like to suffer. Uh, so I take it very, very personally. So I try to be there for each and every person. And if they start struggling again, I always pray that God will help me to make time to be able to be there for them to help them once again. Bill, going back to the house, like you said, you spent a decade there. Was there yeah. a final straw where your mom said, okay, we got to get out of here and it's time to move? Yeah, and, and let me say this, Dan. Um, each and every one of us, during the time that we lived there, all came under not only a demonic attachment, but heavy demonic oppression. Mm. And there were times, and my mother was a wonderful person. Um, she, it's amazing. What I failed to tell you guys is that um, in her suffering, all those horrific beatings at the hands of my father, she was very ill. She was suffering from high blood pressure 
which led to a series of strokes, which ultimately led to kidney failure. She was very, very ill the entire time that we lived in the house. So it is remarkable. It's a miracle in itself that she lived to be 44. I mean, she was very, very ill and she was the best mom and did everything that she could for us as a mother. And so uh, that is remarkable in itself that she was able to endure. But um, just thinking back on it, I, and it wasn't until I started writing the book that it hit me. I thought, dear God, how did we endure all of those years in that house? And there were times, as good as my mother was, that we could be having a conversation and then all of a sudden, it was like a glitch. Something would grab hold of her and her entire face would change, her eyes, everything. For several seconds, it was like this demon would manifest. And then all of a sudden, it was gone and it was like she was back to normal, like nothing ever happened. Well, I can't tell, I, I get goosebumps even today just thinking about how her face would change and contort like that. Mm -hmm. And this is in mid-conversation, just like we're conversing right now. Mm -hmm. And then something would just grab a hold of her and, and freeze and you would see this thing and then it would be gone and it would be like it never happened. So when you left the home, and you obviously went to another home or an apartment, did anything follow you? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so the final straws to us leaving there, and I'm sorry I got long-winded, I'm just trying to paint <laughs> That's a picture okay. for you guys. Yeah, for sure. Um, the final straw for us was that um, the attacks intensified, and it intensified to the point to where pets went missing, and some were dead, and some went insane, and um, so it was escalating. And it was escalating to the point to where I think my mom realized that, and again, all of us were under this oppression. I was setting the woods on fire and didn't know why I was doing it, but I was doing it and setting major fires. Um, so I think what, um, what really brought it to a head was that even though we were under that level of oppression, my mother realized that if we didn't do something soon, if we didn't get out of there, one of us might turn up dead because these physical attacks were absolutely escalating. Uh, there was an occasion in 1979, and I'll go back to this now, my first battle against those demonic forces I had just returned from the trip of seeing my Uncle Clifford. He armed me with this information that we could take power and authority over these things by the mighty power of uh, God in Jesus' name. And so I... Uh, Little did I know that upon my return, I would engage in this battle. And in, uh, it, I'll never, ever forget it. And it took place after my mother had been attacked. Something picked her up, an invisible force, had picked her up uh, by the back of her neck and thrown her through the air across her bedroom. And she landed into her makeup table. She was cut open. She was scratched. She was bruised. And something inside of me snapped for the first time in all those years, all those years of abuse. It all came to a head that day. And I grabbed the Bible and a, a jar of the holy water that the priest had brought. And here's where I made my mistake. I should have been binding and rebuking and casting them out, but I, I was calling them out. I demanded them to show themselves. And I kid you not. As I was doing this, and, and so there were five adults with me. I was 13 years old, and my mother had just been attacked. Her boyfriend, she had a new man in her life at that time named Richard. Uh, Richard was very much like my father, uh, but was terrified to be in there because he too had suffered physical, many physical attacks. And so it was my mother and Richard, my grandmother, uh, and my mother's sister and her boyfriend. So there were five adults in the house at the time. I was 13 years old, and here I am, uh, had never read a Bible, but I'm holding one in my hands, and I'm commanding these things to show themselves, and it was like a scene from a horror film. The house started vibrating, 
the uh, my sister's bedroom door was opening and slamming for many repetitions at a time. Things were falling off the walls. They were terrified. You know, my mother's already terrified because she's been attacked. Richard wanted to take her to the hospital and she said no. Uh, she didn't want to go to the hospital. So now I'm engaging in my first battle against these demonic forces and it's like a scene from a horror film. So we end up um, going up the hall. They're following me. And they end up standing in the dining room several feet behind me, and I'm at the edge of the living room, continuing to demand that these entities show themselves. And then all of a sudden, it was like, uh, just picture in your minds, like the beams from Star Trek, you know, the beam me up Scotty kind of stuff. <laughs> right. And these entities appeared in these yellowish, greenish beams of light. And uh, the first one had the look, we call it The Undertaker, not the wrestler The Undertaker. It, it had um, a black suit, uh, chalky white skin, black eyes, um, just... Is it wearing a fedora, a hat? Not a fedora, like a top hat. It sometimes oh. more like a top hat and a, visualized almost like an Abe Lincoln looking type of thing. I mean, just very, very sinister. Uh, the second entity, and that's one of uh, three entities that were regularly attacking my mother and I. Uh, the second entity had like red curly hair. It was close cropped to the head. Uh, same thing, black eyes, chalky white skin. The third entity had the look of a witch. It was a female, long black gown, um, long dark hair, sharp facial features. And then the fourth entity was what I call the dark force entity, this hooded, black hooded entity with glowing red eyes. And we clearly saw them for several seconds. And they didn't just suddenly vanish. They just kind of like dissipated. And as they dissipated, all the chaotic things that were taking place in the house had stopped. And there was just this peace. And we ended up leaving and went over to Richard's house uh, for the night. But that was the beginning of the end there that, you know, my mother knew that this was really intensifying. And if we didn't get out soon, um, someone was going to end up dead. And, and the final straw was that we woke up one morning in December of 1980 to a very pungent odor of like burnt wires. And sure enough, every electrical appliance in the house that was plugged in had been burned up wow. all at the same time. And my mother found my brother's pet uh, guinea pig dead in the cage as well. And uh, she had called the, the priest and um, he said to her that he, he recommended that it was absolutely, and he had been all along anyway, and Richard was begging my mother for a couple of years to, to leave and come live with him and she wouldn't do it. But I think that was enough to finally, you know, for her to say, we've got to go. So we ended up leaving. We left most of the decor behind. We took our personal items, our clothes, but we left most of the, the, the furniture and decor behind. And uh, we went to live with her fiance, Richard. And I have to tell you that um, to my knowledge, you know, I didn't have any supernatural experiences at Richard's. And as far as I know, my brother didn't. Uh, either and my sister was out on her own at that time uh, but my mother and I wasn't aware of this until I had seen Richard uh, many years after everything had taken place and he told me that my mother was still having those attacks up until her death wow. and so uh, you know when these attachments take place and these types of demonic strongholds develop the other the person can move to the other side of the world and these entities are going to follow. So it requires uh, a spiritual deliverance and sometimes an exorcism and certainly uh, a breaking of such demonic strongholds and all curses, hexes, vexes, and spells too. After you left the home, did another family move in? Well, I heard that um, the house had changed hands many times over the years. And, and supposedly there was a man that did move in there and it was quite a while after we had left. 
And he moved in and bought the home and lived there for six weeks and then put it back up on the market and took a significant loss. And then I heard it changed hands many times over the years. I was contacted by uh, one of the family members of a family that lived there uh, long after we did. But uh, he reached out after seeing me on the the haunting show and uh, told me that he and his family had lived there and they had, uh, they too had quite a few paranormal supernatural experiences. I wrote about that in my second book called Deliver. And um, his name's Edward uh, Harden. And uh, just amazing that I went on to find out that many of the homes in the area were also under siege, not to the severity to my knowledge of what my family and I had sustained, but there were a lot of people having paranormal supernatural experiences in their home. Hmm. Now I feel that my family and I were led there by the demonic forces that were conjured up by those two family members. I also believe that evil was present and manifest in the home and the area. And this is why we were led there in the first place, because it was the perfect storm to get us into such a severe situation in order to carry out this mission of destruction against us. So I have been back to the area several times over the years as a deliverance minister and uh, God working through me, I have helped uh, families in that very area that were suffering from demonic problems as well. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. You're listening to Phantom Faction Podcast. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com. Are you tired of stale grocery store coffee? Mm-hmm. Then you need to check out Rampage Coffee. It's roasted fresh to order and delivered to your doorstep anywhere in Canada and the United States. It's delicious, and they have a high-caffeine blend called C4 that will blast you out of your morning slippers. Oh, wow. Get free shipping in Canada on their sampler bundle to try all four of their fantastic blends using the code PHANTOM. Go to rampagecoffee.com today. You're listening to Phantom Faction Podcast with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Well... When did it all come about that you started going out to help others? Uh, when did you become Bill Bean in, in this sense? Boy, was that ever a journey. Uh, you know, again, now after the smoke had cleared from us moving out of the house and then having those tragedies with the loss of my grandmother and mother, mm-hmm. my will to live was zero. I wasn't going to take pills or slip my wrist or anything like that. But let me tell you, I lived my life on the edge for many, many years because I was seeking death. I didn't want to live. I was seeking death. And God kept it from me for this very reason now. So it was a process. And I will say that things probably started coming into place after my wife and I got baptized. And uh, that was in uh, 2008, I believe. And it wasn't until then that I felt like I was finally free from all of it. And then I started to to really make an effort to bring God into my life and to make him first and accept uh, his son, Yahshua, Jesus to Christ into my life. And it was two steps forward and three steps backward because when we are, our minds can get conditioned to patterns. Furthermore, when we've suffered high levels of trauma, we operate on the fear-based, trauma-based way of thinking and living. It's very, very difficult to break out of that. So, um, and again, I thank God for helping me to break out of it because I feel that the stronger my faith in God became, the more I was able to move forward. So he really was responding by transforming my life and it was not an easy transformation. But once I felt like I had a complete transformation in my life, then I felt that God was putting a calling on me, that uh, he wanted me to go out and help people. And I resisted that. I resisted that for a long time because I thought, what can I do to help anybody? I have an eighth grade education. I have seen myself with no hope. No, nothing. I was just existing. I, I, you know, I didn't really care to have any type of positive thing 
in my life. And so I could never imagine being able to help people. So I thought God must have quite a sense of humor in putting a calling on somebody like me. And then I came to realize, and I guess it was through not only writing the books, but having people contact me from all over the world and sharing their problems with me and asking if I could help. And in the beginning, I would refer them to people that I knew. But then I started to understand it. And I understand, understood what God was doing in that he could work through me to help these people because I've been there. I know what it's like to suffer so we can relate. And so once I finally realized that, that's when I decided that I was going to become a minister and go out and start helping people. So it really wasn't until I'd say probably 2013 that I actually started going out and uh, by the power of God working through me, helping people to become free from this kind of garbage. And I'll never forget the first family that I helped. I really didn't know what I was doing, to be honest with you. I was just being led by God, but yet I knew, mm. I knew right away that this is my purpose in life. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it was the greatest thing for me to A, know what my purpose in life is and was, and B, that God, I could actually work through somebody like me to make a positive difference in somebody else's life. So that's where it all started. And I never looked back from there. And uh, I, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds, maybe even the low thousands, I've lost track of how many people it's been and people from all walks of life, you would be shocked at some of the high profile people that have come to me for help. Just absolutely amazing. I give God praise and thanks for all of it. And I will just continue to move forward with God working through me to help as many people as I possibly can. So Bill, um, like you said, you've been all over the US, you've been all over the yeah. world helping people. Um, when you go to these places and you, and you do what you can, do you ever end up going home and bringing something home with you that uh, you didn't want? Uh, or, or do they know that you're coming and they show up at your home and try and manipulate you at all or try and put the fear into you a little bit? And again, I have to thank God and praise God for this. No, uh, I would never, and, and this is part of my real and authentic connection and relationship with God and keeping him first in all things. Now, am I perfect? No. Do I claim to be? No. I make mistakes just like everybody else, but I try to do the best that I can do and be the best that I can be in my life every day of my life. And so I have to stay dedicated to God. And through that dedication, I have a closeness. And I know that God's with me and for me. And if God's with me and for me, then nothing can stand against me. And it's by the power of God that I can say that. So I've never had, and I've been in some severe situations. Just again, you guys would have to, would have had to have been there with me to see with your own eyes, some of these things that took place. And I never had, and, and of course I pray over everything. And also what I do after these exorcisms or deliverances take place, then I have to go through the entire home. And I have to bind and rebuke and cast out any demons that might be hiding or lurking. And I ask God to send his giant warrior angels to come in and take these things into custody and carry them out and off and away from there. And I bless the uh, first thing that I do when I'm uh, approaching the home is I bless the land. I say land blessing. And again, I'm asking God to send his angels to come and take into custody any demons that might be dwelling in on or around the property. I ask him to seal up any and every portal that might be above, below, around, or in the home. Uh, I'm asking him to seal all those portals up. And so it is a process. And I'll tell you, there's times that uh, I have gone into the homes of uh, a victim or victims and not come out until sunup. I mean, it's just, it is a process. There are times that I've sat down with people and had anywhere from four, five, six, seven hours straight of gut-wrenching dialogue that uh, they're telling me happened. So uh, it's a process, and I'm every bit as much a counselor as I am an exorcist. So I have to 
um, when I go into this thing, I have to cover all the bases. And, and again, first thing is blessing the land. Then I go inside, anoint everyone's head with a combination of holy oil, holy water, and holy salt. And um, then we sit down. I say uh, several prayers at the front door, and uh, including a house blessing prayer. Then we sit down, and I have to become a counselor. And then we have to engage in this rather unpleasant dialogue and discussion and it is necessary because it's part of the purging process so we must get this up and out and off in order for it to be purged because the devil will use these things against a person uh, as far as having legal right and the devil can go to God and say well I can remain in that person's life because I have legal right to do so and God will allow it because of free will so it's very vital and crucial that I develop a bond of trust with the individual or individuals and then we talk in real talk and get this garbage up and out and off i can recall one case uh the young lady she had suffered a horrific uh, child molestation and it had stayed with her you know for all those years and um something triggered it to uh manifest into physical attacks on this young lady who was in her 20s at the time. And it took her 30 minutes, you know, sitting there at the table with her and her family. And it took her 30 minutes to be able to get the words out of her mouth to be able to tell me what happened. So that's how terrible it is for some people and how much they can bury it. And they don't want to address it. They don't want to face it. They don't want to talk about it. But once they do get it, you know, up and out and off, then it becomes uh, liberating. And it's part of the purging and transformation process. And then I can engage in spiritual warfare against those demonic forces once we have purged all these things out. Was it your uh, writings, your your books that uh, got you noticed as far as uh, going on like George Norrie's Coast to Coast? Uh, and many of the television shows. Ghost Nation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's amazing in itself because, again, I had such a low opinion of myself for so long that I never, ever thought that I could aspire to do anything or be anything. And so with the writing of the books, it was... I was going to start working... I, I had a friend that was going to write the first book for me because, again, I had no confidence in myself to be able to uh, to tell the story and then you know put it in writing and, and have that to look like anything legible, and um, he started writing it, and it just didn't. God was telling me it's not going to work because it's not. It's got to come from me. It's got to come from my voice. It can't come from somebody writing the story. It's just not going to work. So. We shelved that project and I sat down and, and my wife helped me greatly with the spelling and diction and punctuation. Um, we sat down and I started writing and it was right around that time that I was contacted by a haunting. I don't know how they found me or my story, but they did. And it was in their season two. And it was like in December, I want to say probably December 2005, I think, when they initially contacted me. And I agreed to, to have my story featured on there. And I approached my siblings about it. And they didn't want anything to do with it at first. And then it was, uh, I'll never forget it. It was a Saturday afternoon, one Saturday afternoon at my brother's house. And um, it came up again. And then they started talking about things for the first time in all those years. We actually sat down with three of us and started talking about this. And uh, they reminded me and brought up things that either I didn't know about that happened or things that I had long forgotten about. And so then with that, they agreed to be a part of it as well. So that's how it all came about. And when the episode aired, it aired on September 7, 2006. One of the most watched and rebroadcast episodes of that series, History. And um, it was seen in all these different countries. And that's what really put me on the map. And 
people started contacting me and, and people started contacting me uh, for interviews as well. It was, it was so crazy. I was doing like four or five interviews a day wow. and into the night. It's just absolutely amazing. Getting off of one interview, going on to another one. It was just crazy for such a long time, but that's what put me on the map. And that's what got the attention of George Norrie, you know, coast to coast. And uh, he is a good friend of mine and Tom Danheiser, the executive producer is a very good friend of mine. And they have treated me great over the years. And I've been a regular on his show and many other shows as well. Everybody, you know, I've had such great treatment from so many people. It's been such a blessing, but never in a million years did I ever imagine that I would be where I am today. God working through me and helping others and having this amount of media exposure as well. And, and the way it works now is that, um, you know, with like Ghost Nation or some of these other uh, I have another ghost nation coming out after the first of the year. Um, but these people will, they'll just reach it out and say, Hey, your name just came up. You know, the producers will contact me and say, you know, would you like to do this or that? We would like for you to come here and do this to do that. And so that's how it all works now. But, uh, you know, back then in the beginning, it was all strictly based on my story and the sufferings that I had endured in that. And now it has changed, you know, now they see me as the expert. I'm not saying I am an expert. It's just they see me that way as the guy that goes in and helps people. So that's how and why the media contacts me now for, um, you know, certain TV appearances and things of that nature. Bill, when you when you travel all over the world, do you do this out of your own pocket? No, um, I did in the beginning. And man, it almost put my wife and I in the poorhouse. <laughs> okay. so, I tell people that I have to charge for my services, and a lot of that just covers my travel. I make enough out of that to be able to pay my bills. This is my full-time job. Wow. I, I couldn't work a job. There's no way. This is a full-time job. Exactly. Uh, people contact me. My cell phone never stops. I have to turn the ringer off because so many people call me or text me, um, constant emails. It's nonstop. There's always people in need, so this is my job. And I've been criticized by some people saying, how can you charge people and all that? Well, um, it's either charge people and do what God has called me to do or not. Because if I've got to go work a job, then I cannot do what God has called me to do. There's just not enough time in the day. So uh, if I were independently wealthy, I would pay for everything out of my own pocket. But I am not. I'm very thankful and very blessed that God has provided life for me that he has and that he does. But And now that said, there have been upteen people that were flat broke and they didn't have any finances. And I did go and help them and continue to do so. So um, the majority of the people, yes, they do pay for my services. However, there are the people that are broke that I have helped and continue to help. So it kind of evens out. And I just thank God and praise God for helping me to be able to make a living doing what he has called me to do in helping people. Mm -hmm. There's so much more that we could uh, get into. <laughs> uh, maybe we can have you back on a, another podcast in the future. And we can, I would love to. Yeah, I more. really enjoyed being on with you guys, and I knew it was going to go quickly, and that's why I was trying to be as brief yeah. as I could oh, yeah. in everything that I was saying. <laughs> well, tell us how we, people can get a hold of your books and uh, how they can get a hold of you. Well, uh, again, I want to thank the three of you. I really enjoyed my time, and I do look forward to coming back on again. Thank everybody out there for tuning in and watching. And if you're out there and you're in need and you feel like you're under some type of spiritual attack, don't hesitate. Visit BillJBean.com. You can email me directly from the site. I will get back to you, or my assistant will get back to you very quickly. And uh, we'll do everything by the power of God to help you. And if you want to read my books, same thing. Uh, visit BillJBean.com and you can order copies. My new book is called The Seventh Book, and that is free. Uh, it's amazing how God puts these things on me, and, and he just put it on me to create this book and offer it to the people for free. It's just a free PDF, and so many people have contacted me for that, and I have freely given and will continue to do so. So when God puts something on me like that, I obey it and I go right with it. I'm going to start work on uh, another new book here very shortly called uh, Stranger Than Fiction 2. And um, that's not only going to cover stories uh, from, from my journey 
but it will also include uh, some friends of mine, um, including George Norrie and Tom Dan Heiser from Coast to Coast, that have had experiences or have uh, you know interviewed uh, people that have had severe cases and things of that nature. So I'm looking forward to uh, starting work on that soon. Well, right. well, thank you for being part of the. Phantom Faction podcast, and that, that was a fantastic interview. Yeah. And I almost wish I had a bowl of popcorn here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say earlier, you know, we're just going to come back in an hour. You keep talking. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but, and I was trying to be brief, you know. I was trying well, to paint a picture for you guys. Yeah, no, it was great. You know what, Bill? I, I think we could be we could sit here for eight hours yep. and, and talk all night. Well, we're going to have a part two, that's for sure, because right. the next time I come back, I'd like to get into uh, some of the experiences that I've had direct demonic attacks along with some of the uh, sightings and interactions that I've had with UFOs, Bigfoot, all of these things. Well, so I'm a big uh, Bigfoot guy. We've got a lot guy, more to so. talk about. That would be amazing. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Bill all right, guys. All right. God bless. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Phantom Faction Podcast, a podcast to educate, entertain, assist, and guide anyone involved or interested in the paranormal. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com.